In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We are here with an amazing individual that I am excited to talk to, who's got a lot of unbelievable knowledge about where he's been, where he's at, and maybe even where we're going, if you consider the final frontier where we're going. Um, Dan Hawk, would you take a few moments to maybe maybe let, let me tell people that you are the, the uh, principal scientist for the First Nations and maybe you could explain a little bit exactly what that means. Well, um, I had set a placeholder for Intertribal Space Agency for tribal governments. And uh, that had moved to United First Nations Planetary Defense when I had found out that we do not have an active ability to mitigate asteroids. And that's how United First Nations Planetary Defense came about. And it's interesting because um, we are not a typical company uh, because uh, our United First Nations Planetary Defense is born out of the Treaty of 1794, the J, the J Treaty of 1794, Article 3. Uh, so our, our company is actually from Canada and the United States combined because the treaty was a commerce treaty between uh, Native Americans, between the, uh, Canada and, and the United States. You know, when I think about the term planetary defense, there's so much in there that that could be unpacked, I think, you know, asteroids or climate change or just, you know, sheer greed and selfishness. What what exactly are some of the things that when I when you say planetary defense, what are some of the things that your company does? Well, the first thing we did was we went out to seek about how we would be able to mitigate an asteroid. And so that led me to, and working with um, Dr. Philip Lubin at the University of um, California, Santa Barbara. And he does uh, what we call laser ablation. 
And that's basically if you were to put a laser on one side of an asteroid and it ejects particles, then it would move in 180 degrees and in a way. So if you have to understand that in, in, in Earth, in its orbital path around the sun, that if you can slow an asteroid by 10 minutes, the asteroid would miss completely the Earth. Uh, so it's important that we have the ability to just slightly move an asteroid if we have um, if we have the ability to know that it's coming at Earth and we have the ability to to mitigate it, that we just need to move it just slightly uh, over a long period of time to to miss Earth in its natural orbital path. So laser ablation is one. And the other is impactor. And of course, the NASA has the DART mission now. It's a double asteroid uh, a redirect target mission that is like three hundred million dollar mission, which is crazy. Um, but it but it's basically used there to 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 slam into into a smaller asteroid that's orbiting a larger asteroid uh, to see how it moves after slamming into it. It's an impactor. So if you can slow the asteroid by ten minutes, it misses entirety of the Earth, and therefore the asteroid goes by and doesn't hit Earth. So you can either move the asteroid or you can slow it down um, so it does not hit Earth. And the other thing is what we call, which is really the last line of defense, which I believe is is called um, uh, uh, pulverize it. So we call it the PI. <laughs> so think about this: so if you have an asteroid that we have missed. And you think about Shelyabinsk in, in 2013 in, in, in Russia. Um, I think it was a 20-meter um, uh, asteroid there. But it, it, if you look at it in a way that if we miss an asteroid, there's 200,000 asteroids out there that have not been characterized that are less than 300 meters in diameter. So if you think about an asteroid coming at Earth, we didn't see it. It's too late, just like Shelyabinsk. What are we going to do? Uh, so the, the last line of defense is called pul pulverize it, and that is basically taking, um, you know, um, I would say penetrators. So penetrators that would go and they would penetrate into the asteroid uh, like like a missile, right? right. And, and it would blow it apart in a way that would peel it away like an onion. Uh, and so... Uh, if you can imagine two things going at each other at you know, uh, uh, you know, at, at fifteen thousand miles an hour, um, <laughs> that that the impact itself of an impactor would be would be huge and tremendous. So, but but you take a, if you take an explosive explosives to to peel it away. So if you have if you are able to blow it apart in such a way that you have pieces of the debris that are you know 10 meters in diameter or less then they will burn up in the atmosphere and therefore you would have less of, of, of an impact on earth so obviously there are litigation issues here because if you were to move an asteroid in some way that you know it's going at new york now it's going at it's going at moscow um, you have created a liability issue so, um, you know, it's really, you know, thinking about this is difficult because there's no real right answers because you can say, well, what if you would have just let it go, you know, just let it go and it would hit this side of earth, not the other side of the earth. Or if you do it and something happens and uh, it mitigates it in the wrong way, then you're liable for that. So, but the, but the point here is that if you have an asteroid that's together 
and it coming at it's coming at Earth, and it's going to hit Earth, and it's going to do a lot of damage. It's going to kill a lot of people. It's going to do a lot of you know destruction. Um, you you have two choices. You can either try to stop it, mitigate it, to, you know, to peel it away, to allow it to burn up in atmosphere, or you can just let it go. And so um, that you know, when we talk about what planetary defense is, that's one thing. But we have set aside, we have, we have, we have bartered, I guess, with um, Rocket Lab in New Zealand to set aside a two-stage electron rocket. And it has the capability of having what we would consider a kick stage. So it can actually take uh, a payload out of orbit. And so right now, they are setting aside a, 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 an electron rocket for us to be able to do that. Uh, so where we are at is that if we do find a, an asteroid that we have a couple of capabilities, we can, we can put some type of scout mission on it, uh, send it out there and we can see what the asteroid is and what it's doing. And so you can see how it's tumbling, see what it's made out of. Um, and then it can send it back. That's the information back to earth saying, okay, yeah, here earth, you got this asteroid is coming at you. It's going to hit you unless you do this, do these things, whatever it is that we need to do, whether it's laser ablation or if it's impacting or, uh, you know, trying to move it in some way, you know, China has long March rockets that they want to try to use to nudge uh, asteroids either way. So if we know what it is, then we have a better chance of mitigating it. Uh, so we can do a scout mission. The other thing is that we can actually take the kick stage and turn it into an impactor. And, or we can put a laser ablation on it. So, you know, we have those abilities to do it. But right now, if we had an asteroid coming at us, we'd be in deep trouble yeah, because we have to find a way to, to you know, to, to get the electron ready to go and to be able to do it, what it needs to do to, to, to save us, basically. Yeah. It's, not, it's not an easy task. And it seems pretty common to me to all of a sudden just see one. Like there seems to be a lot that we maybe because of the way they move or how fast they move or our perhaps that we're not the best at technology. It's very difficult to understand when they're coming. Like I've subscribed to a few channels that you can see the close approaches. And all of a sudden it seems like there's just one coming here. I, I believe there's also the the torrid field that we cross every October where we see all these meteor showers that kind of puts us in danger. What is it? What does the decision process look like if all of a sudden we are briefed, Hey, there is a large asteroid who makes the decision on which particular system to use, be it laser ablation or the impactor, how would the world come together and make a decision on what to do? Well, uh, I, I would be calling up, <laughs> I'd be calling up Phil Lubin. And I'd say, Hey, <laughs> We got an asteroid coming. Uh, wh what do you want to do? And so I, I'm going. I'm going to go to the to the people who know more than I do. You know, I, I, you know, I only had the ability to set the rocket aside. You know, so um, to do the actual um, decision making, that would most likely come from the from the White House. I, I would have to tell you that you know that that decision would come from you know the Pentagon or some, someplace really high up. And, and then I also say that, you know, the air force would be involved and, you know, so you're looking at maybe they would have some type of capability of let's, 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 uh, let's, let's hit it with some, with some rockets or so forth. Um, so I think there, there would be a combination of things, both military and civilian uh, to, to mitigate an asteroid, but there is no guarantee. We, we seen that, we seen that with Shelly Binsk in 2013. It's like there, boom, uh, you know, and that's just, it just happens to be that, 
if that happens with a with a, with a much larger asteroid, oh boy, you know we'd be we'd be talking some serious um, problems here. Yeah. Do you think? I wonder if if de- depending on the severity or the size of the the potential impactor, I'm wondering if the government would even tell us. Like it seems like it would cause such chaos that there would be a discussion about whether you would even tell people. What do you think? No, I think I think it's going to get out. Uh, you know, I think there was some movies like Deep Impact and <laughs> right. a, few, a few others, a few other movies that are very similar along those lines. That you know, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should, uh, you know, uh, gather up all our stuff and go to a nearest cave or something. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, we would have to let people know. People, someone's going to know, and they're going to they're going to let it out. And so they're they're yeah, the idea of chaos it could happen. Uh, but if we have the ability to say, wait a minute now, don't, don't be, don't panic. You know, we, we have some things we can try, you know, we, right. we, we have some, we can have some rockets on the side. We can impact it. We only need to, we only need to slow it down a little bit. We only need to move it a little bit. Uh, so if we can do that and we know it uh, far enough in advance, you know, that that's okay. But if, if it's like Shelly Vinsk and it's right on us, and we don't have the ability to do anything. It's too late, anyways. It, it, who, what, what difference does it make trying to go to the cave when you know the asteroid's right above you? You know, so um, yeah, that's kind of how I see it. Either we know about it in advance, a long ways in advance, or we're going to be in, we're going to be surprised. It's either going to be one of the two. Yeah. Can Can you? I have a faint idea of what the Shelivinsk is, but can you explain that to me? Well, in 2013 in Russia, they had an asteroid that came in nearly horizontal um, that I remember. And when it came in in that direction, that it, it, it I think it air exploded uh, above um, Shelyabinsk. And it was 20 meters in diameter. Um, and I think it ended up, most of it ended up in a frozen lake. And and then what had happened was that it, it it destroyed a lot of buildings, you know, as far as the, you know, like glass and, you know, doors and door frames and those kinds of things. And it damaged people's ears, their eardrums, their eyes. They had, you know, cuts from glass. Um, so it was um, pretty significant, you know, and it was lucky that it was rarely, fairly remote. Um, so um, had it been with, you know, like over New York, we would have been in big problem. We would have big trouble. Um, so it just happens to be that, you know, when we talk about the, um, the Tunguska uh, explosion, right. I think in, in the ni- uh, 1908, I believe it was, that um, it was huge. Uh, and I think that was a comet impact that was air explosion. Uh, so and there's two, you know, comet and, and asteroids. But uh, so, yeah, it. It depends on where where the asteroid ends up, and so in Shelyabinsk, it happened to be relatively remote, but still a city, um, and it, it caused damage and it, it hurt people. And I don't know if any I don't know offhand if anyone was killed, but uh, I know that there were people hurt. Yeah, so yeah, it seems like had it not been a remote area, and even even a slightly more populated place then the consequences would have been dire for the yes. environment and for the people and what what kind of environmental impacts can ha- something like that have well um you know it depends if it's if it's let's say 
in, on water, right? If it's in the ocean or if it is on land. So if it's on land, you're going to have a lot of debris that's going to go into the air and it'd be a lot like, you know, in a volcanic explosion, I mm -hmm. would say, depending on the size. So then what you could do is I think there was a year, I think it was 18... 35 or something like that that they had a year without a sun uh, and it wow. was it was because of because of a volcanic eruption that you know a lot of uh, 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 plants didn't grow their, their food didn't grow and and what had happened was that people starved and so um, I can't remember what year that was but it was what they call it the year without a sun and that happened to to be with volcanic um, activity and and basically the sun was able to pierce uh, pierce through it. Um, so that's one issue. So you have the debris. So now you have the, in, in, in the, the volcanic one also had sulfur. So people were, you know, ingesting that and, mm -hmm. and, and it had, and it, and it hurt their lungs and, and killed them that way. And then also sulfur then got on the, on the, on the, the plants and also killed them that way too. But, um, from the, from uh, an asteroid explosion, you would see the debris going into the atmosphere and depending on how how far and how widespread and how long that could be of devastation of course the, the physical devastation of the, of the asteroid itself you know we're talking a huge explosion obviously so um you know we're talking you know what we would see most likely in in a in a, a nuclear explosion uh so we would see that kind of thing and with that then when you have um uh, probably would be shock waves. So you would have a shock wave that would go outward and before you'd even feel the, the physical uh, effects of, of the debris. So you, the shock wave would come first um, and probably heat. And so um, that's, that's part of it. And then if it was in the ocean, if it landed in the ocean, that's, 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 that's also devastating because yeah. if you have it in the Pacific, ocean and you have the pacific rim and then you depending on the size of course you know you you're obviously you could have huge tidal waves and 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 and, and devastate many um island nations uh so it it just depends so i i think that that where it lands is significant how large it is um, and of course, the angle that it comes in at. So yeah. Shelly Vince was rel relatively shallow and was relatively flat. If it comes in straight at us, we're okay, it could be a big hit. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder with the Earth shifting magnetic North Pole and just the the you know the the magnetic field of our planet. Does that affect like if if it's a giant ball of iron? Does the Earth's magnetic field have some say on where it hits does it like attract the meteor in a certain way like if the the, the north pole is migrating one way would that cause the the asteroid to move that way or how does the magnetic field play into that particular type of setup i i, I doubt it has any effect on an asteroid it's going to go right through it um the, you know we're talking significant mass we're talking uh, uh, you know, the speed of these, of these asteroids are, are tremendous, you know, you know, 17,000 miles an hour or more. So, you know, it, it, the, the magnetic field would be nothing to, to an asteroid, just nothing. So it's, it's just on a, it's on a collision course, wherever it is, it's moving so fast, like a, it's like a bullet pretty much just fired out of a huge cannon and getting ready to hit you. Right. And, you know, it, again, you know, the sun, the sun is there, you know, you got the earth revolving around the sun. 
um, and 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 it's you know it's it's stable. Our 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 our, our Earth orbit is stable around the sun, and so when an asteroid hits Earth, it has to hit it in its natural orbital path. Mm. Um, so it is nothing more than you know being able to. It, you have to realize this that of all the of all of the environmental disasters that we have, you know, like hurricanes and tornadoes and, you know, and, and those, those kinds of things and tsunamis and an asteroid impact is the only one that we can prevent. It's the only preventable natural disaster. And so it's really significant when you think about it that way. Yeah. And it, do you think that we as a planetary entity are doing enough to to mitigate that? Well, we have, you know, we're, we're putting up more satellites uh, and, and more uh, capability for uh, NEA, NEO. Uh, NEA would be the near-Earth asteroid, NEO, near-Earth objects, um, capability from for detection. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, you know, both from the ground and, and from space. Uh, so one of the things they say, well, what we're doing about planetary defense is that we're, we're monitoring, right? So that's, that is, so remember I told you before, we don't, we don't have a rocket on the launch pad to be able to mitigate an asteroid. We don't, we don't have one. Um, so what, it, what is the defense? What is, what is that America does? And why do we create United First Nation planetary defense in the first place? It's because we don't have something on the, on the launch pad to be able to do that. Um, so what we do is we monitor, we, 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 we try to go out and track and see. And, and, and so we still have 200,000 of these asteroids that are less than 300 meters diameter that still need to be characterized that we have not yet characterized. And we know this because of Shelley in 2013. Um, had we known it was there, then we could say, oh, Russia, you know, it's coming, be prepared. And, but it didn't happen. Uh, and the reason why it didn't happen is because we didn't see it. You know, it wasn't characterized. That particular asteroid, that 20, 20 meter asteroid was not characterized. Um, so you can imagine 300 meter asteroid. Wow. You know, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that would be really significant if that had been a 300 meter asteroid instead of 20 meter asteroid in Shelly Vinsky, because you'd be, you'd be talking about a lot of, a lot of deaths then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems if, if people just, I have a really awesome map back here and it doesn't show all the pock marks that we've been hit by, but I think most people who are familiar with landmarks, if you just close your eyes and imagine for a little bit, you could probably think of some, some craters around the world, like crater Lake or, you know, the, the, so the, the Yucatan peninsula or the, how do you pronounce that again? And the one in Russia, the, to, to, to or, I forgot what that was called again. The, uh, the North Tunguska. Tunguska. Thank you very much. Like there's so many actual landmarks where these things have hit and caused devastation. It's, it's almost a wonder why we haven't been hit recently. Is, is there like some sort of time frame? Can you look at a scale and be like, it seems like we get hit by one of these giant things every 20,000 years or every 7,000 years. Is there some kind of, scale we can look at like that yeah actually we get hit every every 50 years about so but 
you know, Shelyabinsk, 2013, 20 meter. So it's about size, right? Yeah. So, so we, we get hit on an average about every 50 years uh, and uh, by asteroid strike. So um, it's a matter of a matter of size and a matter of remoteness. Mm. Uh, so those are the two things. So as you can imagine, you know, the, um, you know, the, the Tunguska explosion over New York, what would happen? You know, so wow. it's a matter of remoteness. And, and, and so, again, you know, you got the earth going around the sun and it's natural over the path, but the earth is also turning. And so, you know, and it depends on which direction the asteroid is coming and at what angle. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of um, variables there. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a matter of luck, really. It is. Yeah, I was listening to a, a couple guys, like Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson, and they were talking about the different cycles that we go through. And they spoke about similar how our planet spins around its axis and then our planet spins around the sun and then our solar system spins around the galaxy and our galaxy spins around the universe. They had made the claim that through certain parts of our travel through the great year, we find ourselves on what's analogous to like a crowded freeway. And there's all these, you know, in these certain times of the great year, we go through spots that are crowded by asteroids. And I'm wondering if maybe there's some sort of research where we could use the stars or the constellations to know where we are, like in the great year, to know when we're more susceptible to getting hit. Have you ever heard of anything like that? Um, um, no, but what I can say is space is big. Right? Yeah. So if you look at the distance, you know, like from here to Mars or, you know, to, to Pluto as an example, space is big. So even it, it, right now, we are feeling the effects of the Andromeda galaxy uh, ap approaching um, our own um, Milky Way galaxy. We feel the effects of that, uh, but it's so minute that we don't we don't really feel it. But we know it's there. We can measure it, and so we know that we know that the Andromeda galaxy is affecting us. But space is so big, so you could imagine another galaxy intermixing with milky way as an example but space is so big that you know you know that th these planets would 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 planets collide it's possible but because space is so big that the the, the chance of even planets colliding are remote they're, they're very small it's just because of the fact that the universe is so huge you know it's endless um and it's only that reason that you know um, you know, we don't we don't feel the effects of, of, of other things that are happening. Let, let's say right now, um, you know, the black hole is an example or, you know, um, how, uh, you know, some type of supernova exploding somewhere else. You know, we, we don't feel the effect because space is so huge. It's so big. Um, you know, we're just a really, really, really tiny spot. We're just a speck of sand, you know, uh, in Earth. That's all it is. And, and, and when you can the scheme of what universe is. That's so that's so amazing to think about how a different galaxy or approaching galaxy can begin to change everything on Earth. When we first began talking this morning, you were talking about space as an ecosystem. And I'm wondering if how how can you explain that a little bit to people how the space 
space as an ecosystem? Well, uh, as I'm Native American, I'm Oneida. Uh, so from an indigenous point of view, you know, everything is connected and, and it is. So when we talk about maybe perhaps a lifeboat, which we are all in, that lifeboat is called Earth, and then we have a biosphere. Biosphere doesn't end or begin with the biosphere itself. It, it extends in the space. We have the space ecosystem, which is now what we consider, let's say as an example, our, our orbital space and our orbital space debris that we have there. That's one ecosystem. The other ecosystems, which we now call XGO, which is beyond uh, our, our, our geo capability, which is our, our geostationary um, orbit or our, our geostational earth orbits. Um, so something beyond that, which would be then we go to our next ecosystem would be our cislunar uh, uh, ecosystem. And then beyond that, then, you know, uh, our, our solar system and then, and then our, our universal system, or Milky Way, and then um, to, to, uh, into our, what we be, would consider then um, um, interplanetary, you know, space. Um, and then beyond that to other galaxies and then the rest of the universe. So we, we have to step it out. Uh, in ways that we consider it to be ecosystem, because right now we're 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 in a way we're polluting our our ecosystem of, of the moon, right? Yeah. Uh, we have we have devastated our Earth orbital capabilities, you know, because of our Earth uh, orbital debris. Because when we say when we say space debris, there's two different kinds. There's the, the orbital space debris that we see, and then of course the debris that is outside of that, which could be like the debris on the moon or orbital debris uh, of the lunar of the lunar um, uh, of the moon itself and so you know we don't we don't see it that way we see that you know hey we have um, a lunar orbiters but if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing then it's debris so we have to look at things differently because we it's it's so easy to take our orbital debris mindset of our orbital orbital debris and and move it to our lunar orbital debris and, and so like, oh, well, we, we polluted Earth. Let's go ahead and pollute the moon. And so um, that, that's, not, that's not how we should be doing things. And from a Native American point of view, we have to be uh, mindful of those kinds of things. And we have to, have to understand that of all the things that are happening on Earth and all the most important things that are here on Earth that we do, one of the most important things is to maintain our, 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 our sustainability in space and partly because of things like weather satellites, right? So you can imagine that if we didn't have weather satellites and, and, and we, we had such a, a orbital space debris problem that we, you know, we had, a, or we just put up a new weather satellite and it just got slammed by space debris. Now that, you know, that 1 billion satellite is no longer available to us. So the idea there is that if you have, let's say like like weather satellites you can you can you can you can warn people about hurricanes and and disasters like that and so they have the ability to mitigate their property and to save save themselves from let's say you know from the, from the hurricane or you know to tsunami or whatever um, so the point being is that uh, our space is is viable our space assets are viable for not just weather, but also for financial transactions, for communications, um, you know, for um, you know, for national security. Uh, so, without having a viable space, orbital space, 
uh, in Earth orbit, then we, we, we put ourselves in jeopardy. And so we have to be very mindful about what we do. So we have a lot of space debris. First, we have, you know, we had four nations, including the United States, blow up our own, uh, our own um, satellites in space, in our orbital space, which is insane, which is yeah. insane, absolutely insane. And then, of course, um, um, beyond that, we, we have an increased launch cadence. So we're, that what that means is that we are putting more rockets on the launch pad with more satellites on them, and we are sending them into our orbital space. And you are talking about things like, um, you know, OneWeb and Starlink and those kinds of things where we're going to be putting in thousands, tens of thousands of more satellites are going to be going into our orbital space, probably another 10,000 above the space station and another 30,000 below the space station. So you can imagine we have space debris. And now we're talking about adding more satellites to our, our um, orbital uh, space highways that we have because different altitudes have different congestion problems regarding um, our satellites. So, in, you know, so some orbital space is are more crowded, as you would imagine, going down a highway that some highways are more crowded than others. And you'll see that with, with orbital space, too, because some are more needed than others and some have more capabilities than others. And so uh, it's all a matter of uh, that. But, yeah, it's not good. Wow, I've never thought about it like that. There would be different levels and different frequencies and different heights for things to orbit depending on what it is they want to do. That's incredible to think about. And on top of that, it seems to me that now more than ever, the ability of a private company to launch whatever satellite they want seems to be only a matter of money, not so much a matter of law. Well, okay, so you know, there's not much law in space. I have to tell you. Oh, you know, I had so, no idea. Yeah, so <laughs> you know, the Outer Space Treaty, uh, that, that that's basically it, right? So you know, if we have we have a conjunction problem, we have two satellites going to collide. We know they're going to collide, but um, one belongs to Russia. You just can't just go and grab Russian satellite and move it out of the way. <laughs> you can't do it. You can't do right. it. You know, because you you cause a war, and right. so even though it's dead, you know, it's 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 a piece of junk, you know, and, and there's a lot of junk up there. But the point is, is that you just can't just go do that, you know. So we have we we have technical problems, and in, in, in what we call ADR, which is active debris removal, right? So it's very difficult. Imagine imagine take imagine taking um, a, a four ton satellite that's spinning and tumbling in space that is frictionless so imagine four tons wow and you have to go and try to move it and you so how do you do that how do you detumble a four ton satellite that's in how do you how do you do that okay so these are technical questions and then of course you have policy questions um you know about you know who pays for that so if you have if you have um two satellites that are going to collide and and let's say um one is an operating satellite but doesn't have the ability to move so there's no auto uh, no capability of, of maneuvering uh no auto capability of maneuvering as an example or, or or from the ground by command that you cannot move it but um but the dead satellite is is there too and they're going to collide so um who makes the decision then uh, of 
of paying for moving the dead satellite out of the way. You know, uh, whose responsibility is it? Let's say it's a different country. You know, say hey, different country, your your, your satellite's dead and it's going to collide <laughs> with this this one that's operating, and that one that's operating is a billion dollar satellite. What do we do? You know, so um, then you have so you have you know technical problems, you have policy questions, and then you have. Um, probably international uh, issues too. Like I, like I mentioned to you, like who who's you know because the owner of the uh, of the satellite is is the one that is the country that operates. It's the operation state that owns that satellite, and they're responsible for that. So, and of course, if you move it out of the way and it hits another satellite, mm. then you're responsible. So there's a lot of problems. And so what's happening now, you'll see in the space industry, is that they're creating something called space traffic management (STM). Um, and so um, that is basically, if you consider the idea of space uh, uh, air traffic management as an example, um, but you're doing it in a way of space, but also understanding that there are there's debris up there where you can't you can't move it, you can't command it to move, and you have debris that's under 10 centimeters, and you have debris that's over 10 centimeters. Something we can track, something we can't track. So you got millions of pieces that we can't track, and tens of thousands of pieces that we can track. Uh, so it's it's really a uh, really significant problem. But you can imagine two space traffic management where you have um, you have launch operators that you so you have you have Japan, you have you know you have, you have France, you have uh, Italy, Russia, China, America. Uh, you, you just talked about New Zealand a little while ago. So we have a lot of launch operators that are launching satellites, and 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 and, and um, of course we talked about. Um, maybe Elon Musk is an example of private private operators. So you're having a lot of things going into space now you, and if you're you imagine you're an air traffic controller trying to control that. And now you're a space controller trying to control that. Okay, you know, now you're trying to manage different launch operators under different launch conditions uh, and launching multiple satellites in in, in different in, in different altitudes. And so you're you're talking significant problem and of course again you know we have some satellites that can move on their own we have the auto maneuverability we have some satellites that can be commanded to move provided all that they have the fuel to do it right they have to have they have to have the fuel to be able to do it if they can right and so let's make us make assumption that they don't run out of food out of fuel which of course they will so the point is that um you know space traffic management is way different than air traffic control and and so we have a very significant space um orbital space debris problem i could imagine too something small moving at such a rapid pace could put a hole through almost anything it's like a little bullet up there like if, if we were trying to a spacecraft a space suit you know um another satellite something move something even minuscule could probably puncture a, a functioning satellite if it was moving fast enough yeah well you know it's it's common in the space industry to talk about paint chips so yeah yeah what's, a, what's that what's a paint chip well you, yeah you get you have a rocket that's painted and it it's, uh, chips uh, you know paint oh, chips like wow yeah wow that is that's amazing to think of it's well think of it as a 22 if you were yeah. to fire a 22 bullet that's exactly what you would you'd have if you had a paint chip something similar to that wow it's it's 
it kind of makes me sad a little bit. Like I, if you think of like the great Northwestern garbage patch in the ocean, it seems like we have a great garbage patch above us now. We do. <laughs> uh, we, 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 we do. We do. Okay. But you know, it, there's, so here's, here's the butt of this okay. because, because there's, you know, I, I talked to a guy, a gentleman, you know, um, and he, he always tells me, so Dan, you know what? Um, we will not know a collision until after it happens. Mm. And partly because space is so big. So if you have a conjunction um, warning, right? And saying you have two pieces that are about to collide. And so space is really, really big. What is the probability of those two pieces actually colliding? Um it's really, really, really small. Okay, so you have a lot of debris, and you have um, what we would consider then, you know, what is the conjunction risk? What is the probability? And so there's a lot of warnings that go out to space operators, and they don't do anything because they, you know, because because of the fact that space is so big, and it, and the idea then is that the chances are they will not collide. Um, and so we won't know a collision until after it happens. So, but then again, you know, I was talking to you earlier about, you know, what is the liability issue? Right. So let's say, right. let's say you are operating a, you are operating a, um, a satellite and you need, and you have a conjunction warning and you move it and you move it in the wrong way. <laughs> and, and you, 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 you then um, cause a, uh, another another conjunction of a different of a different kind you know so, uh, but you're you move it in the wrong way so um, there's a lot to be taken into consideration when when moving a piece of this not taken lightly if it there, there really has to be a very significant a lot of consensus um, from many different people multiple sources in multiple data is like is this, are they really going to collide? Are they really, really, you know, so, um, and of course it comes down to whose data you're using. Right. So whose data are you using to determine whether you ha are going to have a conjunction or not? You know, so we even have, we have today, we have several different uh, models that, that, that for that, and, and they may not all be accurate or, or right. So, so we we have a problem today determining which models to use to determine conjunction risk and and so then once let's say we get space traffic management which also then has norms so we create norms that says that for a space operator if you have a conjunction risk with this probability that you have to move it something like that and so now the question is well which way do we move it you know how do we move it wow and, and so you know it, it's really significant because you know if you are under a norm of having to move to prevent a collision, then the norm also has to state you know which way to move it. And if it did cause uh, another another collision of some sort to cause another liability issue, who would then be responsible for that? Well, there's, a, there's a lot that there's a lot that goes on with well, with space traffic management. But the point being is that um, we we ought to do what we can for active debris removal. Uh, we we ha ought to do what we need to do for active debris um, mitigation. In other words, to when you know when we put up 
uh, when we put up bison sat as an example, it's at 400, you know, about 450 kilometers. Uh, so it was a, an educational satellite. But after its mission, it, and of course, its, its primary mission, it, it failed. We were supposed to take a, um, uh, a wide camera view of Flathead Lake. So we weren't able to do that, but it was still putting out data. Um, but its primary mission fails. But the reality of that is that even though it's putting out data, it's not a valuable data. It's not data that is, is a, a required data. So what should have happened is that for our mission, we should have launched low. We should have launched less than 300 kilometers. Uh, at 160 kilometers, you're at the, what we call um, uh, rapid descent. And then you, you, your, your, your satellite then just basically would uh, go into free fall and, and burn up over hopefully, you know, Pacific Ocean. Uh, but the idea there is if you're launching low, that if as soon as your mission is done and over with, whatever it is, whether it's qualifying hardware or if it's to you do a certain uh, test and your mission is over, if, you're, if, you, if it, your mission is over and you're still flying and you're still up in the air and you're still, you're still in space, um, that's debris. And so what we need to do is we need to figure out a way to get those spacecraft out of space and, and, and so that they are not in the not in our orbital paths. Um, so that is uh, debris mitigation and, and debris removal. And uh, so we're worked a lot of companies now are working on, you know, things like um, um, sort of like uh, like parachutes, as an example, that would drag to cause um, or, or orbital space drag and then be able to drag it and, and, and be able to put it into um, into um, deposition the um, over the over the Pacific Ocean, burn it up. That's yeah, all. that's fascinating to think about. I, it makes me want, like, it makes my mind just race a little bit. I, I love talking about it. I wonder if there's a, oh, some sort of chemical reaction that you could put in like a, a satellite that would make it become more dense and heavier once it reached a certain amount of time. You know, if there's some sort of chemical reaction, but before I go way out in the woods with something like that, what let's talk about the different kind of satellites that go up. I the Bison satellite that you put up that was a was that a cube satellite or a what are the different kinds of satellites and what are the most common ones we put up there? Well, CubeSats are are basically um, what we call um, a form factor. So it's a form factor of ten centimeters on a side of one cube, one kilogram. So it's basically, you know, one, one 10 centimeters on a side, one kilogram. Um, so you can have a 6U as an example, or 3U, 2U. Um, we have 12U. And and uh, so there's a point in time where th that is basically where we are at with, with CubeSats up to a 12U. Um, so basically, you know, 12 kilogram satellite. Anything above that right now, we do not have a form factor that's in cube size. So then you're going to things that are, um, you know, um, like a blue origin size, or you're talking uh, maybe uh, hundred kilograms. So you're going basically from a 12 kilogram satellite to basically the hundred kilogram satellite um, form factor. And so basically we, we're looking at a certain kind of bus um, and that, that, that electrical bus would then be able to perform different things, you know, for as far as like um, solar panels and, you know, your, 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 main, your main mission, which might be, you know, earth observation or it might be some other type of, um, uh, of, of issue could be, you know, 
communications, uh, that kind of thing. So, but, but a lot of these other form factors too that I that I missed that are in between that are the ones that are like the OneWeb and uh, the Starlinks and things like that that they are um, are, are maybe a little bit more more of a, an enhanced uh, CubeSat if you want to call them that. But they have their own form factor, um, which is not typical. Um, it, so they would have their own kind of um, launch system for those um, CubeSats. And many of those launchers that do launch, that they have many of those launching at the same time. So mm. you could, could have like 40, 50 satellites on one rocket so uh, or more. It depends on the primary and secondary payload and then, of course, the smaller payloads. So you always have like more or less a primary mission unless you're like like um, a private operator that carries your own missions. So like BisonSat, for example, we launched in 2015, the primary mission was for the National Reconnaissance Office. That was a spy satellite that we didn't know anything about, right? So um, so we, our satellite was like nothing, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, everything else goes first. Right. All the primary secondary missions go first. They are they they launch. They get their they get it out into orbit. They do whatever they need to do, and then they come back down to the to the tertiary satellites that are like, okay, you guys are extra, and yeah. so now we can go ahead and launch you, because every everything else is all secured and safe, and all our main pa main payloads are gone, and so now we can worry about you little guys, and so. That's kind of how that works with the, the launch operators. You got your primary missions, your second, and, and so forth. And it's based on value, uh, most likely into the you know probably into the billions of dollars. Um, so it goes down from you know from real high end to to the lower end of satellites. But that doesn't mean that 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 uh, cubesats or smaller satellites are not effective, because with today's technology, you have satellites that are very small but extremely effective on doing what they do. And that's exactly the case, which you see is the Ukraine-Russian war, mm -hmm. let's say with, um, you know, with Maxar and, and some of the other um, satellites that are capability of, of, of creating high resolution photographs from very, very small satellites to be able to watch troop movements as an example. So small satellites doesn't mean that they are um, not good satellites. They they can be very very effective satellites and and very useful as we we find out that you know like for you know um, Wi-Fi and streaming and all those other kinds of things that we're doing with communication systems around the world, um, and so that that is kind of where where we're at. It's so fascinating. What? Let me ask you this: If let's say that um, George and Dan wanted to launch a CubeSat to look over Antarctica, like what, like, could we do that? And like, how much would something like that cost? Yes, we can do that. As a matter of fact, we have grade schoolers that are doing CubeSats. What? So, no way. That's yeah, so oh, awesome. Yeah. Yes, it's true. Uh, so, you know, we have, we have, um, you know, uh, grade school kids that are doing CubeSats. So um, the, when you when you're talking about uh, a real satellite that wants to do real work right and do real in, real science uh, we could do that let's say we launched over the we, we launched launched over the pole so we're gonna we're okay. in a polar orbit right so let's okay. say we're in a polar orbit and a cubesat a one new cubesat over the polar orbit um, probably you know uh, I would say you know you could probably do it for you know fifty thousand dollars. Right. And if you're if you're on with a lot of other satellites launching, you could probably, you know, um, I think all total, maybe one hundred thousand dollars. You could put up a satellite to be able to do what you wanted to do. 
So, wow. I mean, it's just really, really cheap for 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 a CubeSat to do that, and you don't even propulsion on on a, on a, on a CubeSat. Uh, so, uh, BisonSat was was uh, um, paramagnetic, paramagnetic, so it, it flipped over the poles. So it was neither pointing in the North Pole, and it was uh, uh, basically then pointing into space in the Southern Pole uh, because it was. Uh, a, Basically, in the lines of magnetic flux, and on which way that the the, the, uh, the satellite was pointing. So, it's, still, it's, it. it's amazing to me. I um, what a what a fascinating time to be alive, and um, I can only imagine being a grade school kid and beginning to learn about something like this, and then seeing a project happen from, imagine being a, a grade school kid and you start talking about space and you have a teacher, and then maybe you came in or someone that came in to talk about space. And then in a matter of years, you go from third grade to fourth grade, and all of a sudden you as a kid got to see the satellite in space. I think that, that it's those kind of programs that would really spark the imagination of the next generation that could probably be the ones that are gonna help get rid of some of this junk. Well, exactly. And so a lot of these CubeSats are actually used by big companies because they want to demonstrate a piece of hardware or demonstrate a capability. So to do it, they do it cheap. And so um, and that, that's that's one of the ways they do it. But also keep in mind that uh, the CubeSats, 10 centimeters on a side, just if you're using a 1U cube, um, that is trackable, but not easy. Right. Mm. So, so we have a lot of, a lot of CubeSats now going into space, which is a part of our orbital space debris problem. Right. And, and BisonSat is one of those that is an orbital debris problem because it's at 450 kilometers or so. Um, and it'll take a long time for it to come down. So part of the law issue, right. Mm. The law issue that I talked about earlier was that it's okay to put up a satellite. And even if it dies, that you can stay up there for 25 years. It's okay. You know, and and the, and that that's not okay. Yeah, it's, it's not <laughs> right, it's, right. it's not okay to say right. somebody came up with, and and the reason why they came up with the twenty five years was they said, well, after twenty five years, it's not going to be our problem; it's going to be somebody else's problem. So oh, let them figure it out. And yeah. so so let let's go ahead and make twenty five years an okay thing for satellites to be up there and and not have to worry about uh, what we're going to do with it. And, and that's wrong because the idea that is, you know, since Sputnik in, in uh, 57, there should have been all along some way to mitigate debris. But, you know, in the time that they were doing the space race, they did not care about the directory of their upper stage um, uh, uh, rockets. And so um, we, we had all kinds of debris up there and no one cared about how to mitigate it or how to deal with it. And it wasn't too long ago. I think it was where, you know, we had a piece of debris actually uh, an upper stage rocket i believe land on the moon that actually was an unintended consequence that we had debris from orbital space land on the moon as debris as junk and so um and i think that and, and of course i think there was a China and, and, and Elon Musk were fighting about whose debris that was. So, <laughs> of course. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, the point is, is that it, it exists. And so all along, we should have been taking care of our orbital space saying, you know, if we put it up, we have to do something with, we have to have an end of life procedure or we're done with our mission. Uh, we, 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 we fire our, we have a, we have a procedure. We, we, we fire our, um, 
and deorbit um, engines and we take it out of space and we deposit it over the ocean and we burn it up. That again is also a problem, right? So you, you can imagine that you're having a lot, most of these spacecrafts are made out of aluminum. So now you have aluminum that's being burnt up in our, in our orbital space um, that, that enters the atmosphere of, of our, our Earth. So um, those, those are problematic issues too. So, you know, and as a Native American, our satellites, will we're going to be using industrial hemp frames and not nice. aluminum frames. And we'll be using industrial hemp uh, rocket fuel and industrial hemp, uh, you know, printed circuit boards. So we're, we're looking at a way of being more mindful when we go into space about how we are going to deal with these problems. And, and of course, we'll have you know, our orbital um, end of life procedures called EOL, end of life procedure to be able to deposit them over the, the, the Pacific Ocean, but burn up in a way that it's more sustainable than burning up aluminum. That's a that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Like, you know, there's a saying that says, as above, so below. And when I think about how a lot of us, I, I know I'm guilty of it too, but a lot of mankind has kind of been guilty of being a pretty big polluter because, of, you know, if you look at some of the rivers or if you look at, say, nuclear waste in some areas seeps into the river or we have landfills that seep into the environment. It seems to me, if, if we know that's happening here on the ground in this ecosystem, and we know that there's weapons in space, and we know some of these satellites are they're weapons, like, isn't it possible that Lord knows if there's some sort of chemical agent in these satellites, or there's even of aluminum or some types of metal, it seems to me that those particular forms of pollution could leak into the atmosphere the same way the pollution in our ground can leak into our aquifers. And it, it's just so, it's sad, but it's also fascinating to think about the patterns that we have as humans. Like, why do we do this? Like we, we, the same pollution has got to work, right? If there's, if there is weapons in space and there's bio agents or aluminum or just even metal, that's got to pollute the atmosphere as well to a degree that we don't even understand yet. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's going to be a lot worse than that. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. So, oh yeah, yeah. So, you know, my my biggest issue right now is um, the fact that we have um, large landers going to be landing on the moon, and uh, they're going to be ejecting, um, you know, our lunar regolith into space. Right. What is so, that? I don't know what that means. Lunar regolith. What does that mean? Uh, okay. So, so lunar regolith is, you know, if you go to the moon and you step on the moon, you know, like um, Neil Armstrong did, you know, you're you're going to step on lunar regolith, which is basically, you can call it Earth's soil, but on the moon, but it's not really soil. It, I see. There's, there's no soil on the moon. It's it's regolith. So okay, um, it's different. But the point being is that it's extremely fine, um, and you know we're talking down nanometer size, right? So that's where to get the, the idea of nanophase iron on the moon. So, um, but you can imagine that the LEM, right? So the Apollo missions, their, 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 their lunar excursion modules were 3,500 pounds of thrust. Some of these engines that we're talking about, that with our landers now going to the moon for the Artemis program are going to be into the millions of pounds of thrust. And so what's going to happen is if you take an understanding that the moon is at one sixth gravity, right? that and you're in an environment where it's not wet this is dry right and you have the ability to move things relatively quick because you're at one six gravity yeah. that if you have a rocket engine that's coming in and it is at millions of pounds of thrust that the lunar regolith is going to go off 
the surface of the moon and into space. Yep. And so that to me would cause an environmental disaster. Um, And that's my position as far as I, I know, because there is no, there is no credible plan right now that I see uh, for uh, lunar landing pads. They just don't exist. And uh, so it's going to be very difficult to, to, to mitigate any large landers. So my position is that we need to, to use a precautionary principle and then use smaller landers uh, and being able to do things like um, create, put monitors using CubeSats actually, uh, put monitors on the, on, on the surface of the moon to be able to monitor the lunar dust as we have, um, you know, uh, and uh, our landers landing and, and ascent vehicles ascending. So um, to be able to do that, and also have a lunar orbiter that is able to to monitor the lunar dust as it goes into the, into space, because I think that's going to be a significant problem, um, where you know the the dust will will um, eventually find its way around the sun, um, and that's not good from my point of view. And so I think we have a lot of debris issues that we're going to have to worry about, some environmental problems that we're going to have to worry about when the Artemis program. Uh, of course, we have, and I mentioned before, you know, our, our lunar um, orbital debris that we should be concerned about um, and and debris on the moon itself from, you know, from the Artemis program, but then also take care of our orbital space debris. So we, we, need, to, we need to look at things in the long run to be able to look at debris a, 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 as, a, as a, um, a big picture as compared to the smaller picture. And, of course, we have things like we had a, the idea of outer space cultural heritage, which is, you know, um, how do we protect, um, let's say, the Apollo 11 landing site is an example. So um, I can see as an example, we're having so much dust uh, being blown around in moon that, you know, these, the boot prints will no longer exist. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really significant problem, the lunar dust. Uh, I mean, it, it, of all the things that going back to the moon it, is the, the the, the most important thing to worry about is lunar dust. Uh, and it, you would think so, but it is. It's probably one of the most important things that the Artemis program has to deal with. And, uh, and, 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 and just... And just saying that, oh, well, we're just going to land and uh, um, and have this dust going all over the place. That that's not uh, that's not a good thing. We have to we have to do better on the lunar dust problem. Yeah, I remember. It seems like a few years ago they they crashed a satellite into the moon. Or they crashed something into the moon, and I'm wondering if if you remember that there had to have been some sort of test to see the debris come from that impact or the there have to be has there been monitoring of impacts of the moon to see the debris field after that yes i think that was a prospector mission um and, and yeah there was an impactor and i think um uh, i think uh, there was actually some um human human remains on that that impactor too i think it was the oh, wow. schumacher yeah schumacher um uh, uh, had re- remains in on that 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 impactor, but then and of course Native Americans weren't weren't notified of that either. But um, so I've I had recently you know as I as I um, mentor some uh, students from MIT and their Space Enable group, one of their one of our one of our meetings I had a a a person come on. And she said, hey, you know um, we're having this lunar orbiter. 
And I just happened to say, you know, what are you doing at end of life at the loop with this lunar orbiter? So, well, we're going to impact it on the moon. So their, 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 um, their, their end of life procedure was after we're done with our mission, we're just going to, we're just going to slam it into the moon. Um, so <laughs> we, crazy. well, it, I mean, it, I mean, okay. So then the other alternative would be just to put it in a trajectory that would take it out of, out of our, um, our solar system and not impact it on the moon. Uh, so it's a matter of what we, we can do to mitigate the things that we, what we want to do. So to them, maybe it was normal to, to impact it on the moon, but I, I don't feel that that is uh, uh, the right thing to do. Maybe put it into the sun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you <laughs> right. Yeah. Would that be better? Yeah. You could burn it up in the sun, but, <laughs> but, but, but that would have been an alt, that alter, alternative choice mm. instead of impacting it on the moon. So I, I, I wouldn't, I, that would not have been my choice to impact it on the moon, but those are the companies that we deal with in space. We have to, we have to work through, you know, these kinds of questions because, you know, the way that I think is not the way that other people think. Yeah, that's a great point. And that, I think that that is something that can be applied no matter what field you work in is it's so many different people, you know, that kind of brings me to the idea of worldview. I think as a native American, the worldview, which you operate under, seems to be much more harmonious than the worldview in which the Western religions work underneath. And I think that that impacts almost everything we do. That that does impact. Like, let's just smash this thing in over here. Let's just break, put this over here. I'm, I'm thankful that you are doing what you're doing. I think it seems to be the voice of reason sometimes. Have, have you ever thought about maybe the way in which you were brought up, your worldview affects the reality in which you live and the way you interact with people that you're working with now? Uh, absolutely. You know, as I'm the only Native American worker <laughs> with, with the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium. They, they come, they, they you know, uh, I have to say, when they first started the, what we call a value chain, on, on the on the moon. So, so first of all, Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium is run by John Hopkins University, and we have several different um, focus groups, and I'm almost on all of them. Um, so, the one one is called Value Chain, and and partly to when you go to the moon, as you as you have you either product or a service, right? And so, one of the two things that they did, two things that they came out of the value chains, like um, an input and an output. And so yeah, you have something going into your product or service and you have an output of your product and services. So the first thing I said, well, where's your, where's your waste? And, and so that's because the, the product, the output was not the same as waste. And so what we have to do is we have to understand that when we're on the surface of the moon, if we, are, if we have a product or we have a service, we have some type of waste. But to use that waste in such a way that another company that has a product or service to use the waste of someone else's product or service to be an input to the other product or service so that we don't go to the moon and waste things because it's very expensive. First of all, you go to the moon, it costs a lot of money to do that. It can cost a lot of money to get there. And so you just don't want to go there and waste stuff. You don't want, you don't, you want to make sure that if you have something that's, let's say if you're, if you have an output of some type of chemical um, that, that maybe some other, company that may need that chemical um they may they may need that and so um the idea is to, to create that value chain so where we have our our inputs and outputs and, and our waste streams that they're all 
coordinated in a way that hey you need I need this you have that uh, let's work together and let's um, and let's see how we can benefit each other mutually so we don't have waste on the lunar surface uh, so um, from a, from a worldview point of view right Native American yeah. world yeah worldview you have to look at first of all in, in the Iroquois you know from being Oneida is that we we we, we originate our, our our creation stories are from sky world so we look at it a different way um than some other tribes that maybe originate from from the earth and so um i always go about the idea of what how things are connected right and so when we go back to the ecosystem the ecosystems are connected and and so what we do what we do to one strand of the web we do to all of the web what we do wow. to once when we do to one one strand we do to all so um we must pay attention so that when we 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 uh, we, we we break one strand as an example uh we harm it it it, it, it hurts the rest of the entire uh, entirety of the web um so we cannot go let's say if we if we go to uh, follow artemis we go to the moon we go to the mar we go to mars and we go there to, to live in a permanent way, you know, go there to stay, which is the whole purpose of doing what we're doing, that we go there and we do it in a way that we are a community. We are not, right. we're not colonizers. We don't go there militarily. Right. We, we go there, we go there as a community of people and we are respectful of each other. And, you know, the Native American astronaut is just as good as the military astronaut, right? So we have to understand that we go there as a community of people and, um, that that we 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 are we are caretakers. So Native Americans are caretakers of the land, but we are caretakers of airspace. But we also be we also need to be caretakers of space. So um, being caretakers of space is to to help and support space traffic management, being able to mitigate those things in orbital space, to be able to go to the moon and being able to watch after and look after those people who want to impact their their end of life um, you know missions on the, on the surface of the moon. Or you know to, to oversee over um, uh, outer space cultural heritage as an example to be able to um, to maintain those things that are important to America like you know the um, you know the Apollo 11 um, um, landing site is an example uh, someday that may be our own museum but we need to take care of it um, and it's the same thing with um, you know our waste streams we 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 go to the moon saying oh okay well our it's okay to put a garbage dump on the moon. No, it's not okay to put a garbage dump on the moon. Um, you know, so I had, you know, the ability of somebody saying, well, you know, we, we have this, we have these tailings and we're just going to say that it's, um, you know, it's of use. It's, somebody else will use it somewhere along the line. So it's really a value, but it really is garbage, really junk. It's, <laughs> right. it's really, it's really, it's really pollution, but we don't call it that. We, we call it something else. <laughs> That's so silly. We'll, we'll, we'll call it, you know, we'll call it something else so that it's a value. And, and it could very well be because in the moon, everything is expensive. So it could very well be a value. But we need to understand that, you know, um, that is that's important. So here's the other part of it, you know, so and we're Native American. So let's let's say we, we create our own lander. We put our lander on and now, hey, that's the first Native American lander right there. That's cultural heritage. You can't you yeah. can't just you can't just dismantle and take it apart and, and use the you know the pieces and reuse the aluminum I mean, that that's that's cultural heritage and but what about the second lander 
What about the third lander? You know, so then is if the first one is cultural heritage, is the second one debris? Is the third one debris? So we have to understand and think because the the idea of, of businesses and companies going to the moon and putting different types of landers and 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 um, let's say experiments and those kinds of things on the moon and say, okay, well that's cultural heritage. And when it's really debris, that really is not um, that's really not a good way of thinking about things. So we have to we have to go about a way of saying we we have to have some type of procedure, some type of some type of um, framework to go by to say this is debris. This is this is something that's important for the for all of the world to know in the future. This is cultural heritage. This is debris, and so we need to make that separation between the two because we're talking about a lot of money. We're talking about yeah. a lot of value here, and so you should we should be able to go to the moon and say, okay, um, this is your 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 third lander. The other ones are you know the cultural heritage. You pull a pin and it comes apart, and now you're able to reuse the aluminum. You're able to reuse things. We're able to recycle things on the moon. We're able to do those things, but it's no longer cultural heritage. Actually, we use it as a value change for something, value chain for something else. But that's how we have to think, and it's difficult to get people to think that way. Yeah, I can I can imagine how even here on Earth it's difficult to get people to think that way and, yes. and to see to see the world as I I think it comes back to worldview too. I, I my personal idea is that you don't come into this world, you come out of it. Like you're part of the earth. And I, I think that a lot of people, and I don't I'm not saying one way's right or one way's wrong, and I've thought both of I've thought from both of these point of views. However, when I believe, when I go down the, the idea of being someone who comes into this world, I feel that there's a separation between myself and everything else. But when I look at myself as coming out of this world, I feel as if I'm part of this world. And I feel like that, then we get back to Indra's web and, and, and the idea that you and I are connected and that me and my daughter and me and my neighbor and me and my banana tree and me and my cat, like, when I, when I have that aspect of I come out of this world, it fundamentally changes the way I interact in this world. And that's why I had asked you the question about, about worldview and narrative. I, it seems to me that different cultures have different views. And so when we get to the idea of space and the first lander being cultural heritage and the second one being debris, you know, different cultures see the world differently. So they would see the they travel through space different. And it it just makes me wonder if if when we the idea of space travel and all this exploration should be something that unites us. However, it's it scares me that it could be something that continues to divide us. What what is your aspect on on space and exploration as a uniting force? Yeah, it has to. Space space is supposed to unite us. Uh, so um the reality there is that, you know, when we go to the moon, like I was telling you, that we go there as a community of people, not, not, you know, not, not a military post, you know, not a, you know, not some type of um, outpost. You know, those are, those are colonizing words that hurt Native Americans. Yes. And so, you know, this is not a fort on the moon. We're talking about a community of people working together to do certain things, to do experiments and science and, uh, you know, and exploration. 
and, and uh, as as all people are, are explorers, including Native American people, we go there as as a community people, as explorers, and it has to unite us. And in our failure to allow that to happen would be would be would be a tragedy for 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 us as people. So the International Space Station showed us that we can work in space together. We can do things in space together. Um, you know, unfortunately, Native American people were left out. You know, it was on, and it was unfortunate we were placed in the ITAR list too. But you know, we got us off. I got us off that list, so we're no longer on that list. Um, so we we can go into space. We can do things, and so it's important uh, for for tribal people, especially, you know, to to be able to monitor our own resources from space, to monitor our own habitat change, our own climate change from space. And that, that follows on the, the Torres Strait 8 lawsuit against Australia and the United Nations, where they, their island nation was, is being you know, um, inundated by, by, by sea level rise. And they claimed that Australia says, hey, you know, you're not doing enough for climate change and look at what's happening to our island nation. So uh, you need to do better to, to, to help support us uh, indigenous people. So um, uh, we we need to have the ability to to monitor our own resources from space um, and our own you know capabilities for for, for remote communications as an example uh, you know the idea of climate change based on the Torres Strait lawsuit in Australia and and I think I think it goes more than that too you know because as the federal tribal trust responsibility between Native Americans and our in our in our federal government it, we also have some responsibility for, let's say, national security. Um, watching our borders, we we have we also have a problem with murdered, missing Indigenous women, um, which I'm now raising to the level of the Sustainable Development Goal 8.7, the United Nations for slavery from space. Uh, so we have that ability when we when we take our, our satellites into space to be able to monitor uh, slavery from space and as a support of um, murdered, missing Indigenous women. Um, and so, you know, we have a lot that we can accomplish in space as Native people, but at the same time, we go there as a way for space development and space exploration, and uh, that, that is to, to work together as, as, as human beings, as a community, uh, as rather as oppressors and, and, and uh, those that are, are the, you know, to, to move away from the colonizing ways of, of thinking and to decolonize, um, deinstitutionalize, and demilitarize. And that's why I'm so um, against the idea of militarizing cislunar space. I just, I just don't, I just disagree with militarizing our cislunar space. It's just not, it's not right. It's wrong. I'm so happy to hear you say that. And, and let's, are, are you doing okay on time? Um, well, I, <laughs> I, I should go, but we, we have a lot more to, to we, like I talked to you for, for a very, very long time and over many, many podcasts, if you want, yeah, we yeah. done many of the things that I, I have know. on my website. So yep. this is just one thing. So. Okay. Awesome. I, I'm so thankful to talk to you. It's, it's a real pleasure. And, uh, I feel like I'm learning a lot and I've got other questions I wrote down and for people listening or watching, uh, Dan and I are going to be meeting the first and third. Uh, Tuesday of every month, and I've got some links below. Dan, where can people find you if they want to hear, hear more and, and get a hold of you? Where can they find you? Well, um, uh, UFNPD, United First Nations Planetary Defense, it's UFNPD. Um, um, 
so um, that would be, let me see, uh, WordPress, WordPress.com. So UFMPD, WordPress.com. So that would be, you'd be able to find me there. A lot of things happening. Fantastic. And and um, is there anything else you want to leave people with before we uh, end today and, and set up for next one? No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to the next one. There's, there's, there's a lot going on. You know, we just um, we just were um, uh, recognized by the, the World Mining Congress for 2023 as we, we start to um, look for industrial hemp to mitigate mines all around the world uh, to turn it into rocket fuel. Uh, industrial hemp rocket fuel. So awesome. we're, 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 you know, there's mining is a big deal, you know, and it's uh, necessary, but yet it's an evil. And so we're, we're looking at ways to, you know, use industrial hemp um, to, to mitigate mines and uh, um, to create rocket fuel uh, as a way of, 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 of supporting the, the space industry actually to go towards more neutrality, carbon neutrality. Uh, so you'll find a lot more of that where we're, we're heading in those directions to be able to do those things. Yeah. It seems like such an exciting, I think it, there's a real opportunity and I think times ahead, if we choose to make them and focus on them can be a lot more sustainable and a lot more rewarding for all of us if we work together. Well, we have to, you know, and, yeah. you know, we, we see this in Ukraine, Russian war right now is that we, we have to work together. A lot of problems, you know, we, you know, I look at the website once in a while and I, I see, you know, um, you know, things going on, like, you know, um, our, our farmers are protesting against nitrogen. And I, and I keep saying, you know, the idea that um, it's not, we really don't have a nitrogen problem. What we have is a carbon problem. We have, you know, our, our, um, our climate change is, is carbon-based. And so to suggest that nitrogen is the problem is, is wrong thinking. We need to be able to use, you know, like the Amazon black earth, Amazon brown earth, kind of sustainable agriculture to be able to, to, to sink more carbon, you know, so every one ton of carbon we sink, we sink 3.6 tons of carbon dioxide. So it's important that we do the carbon sinking. And as you sink carbon and create the, the sustainable agriculture, then what you do is you reduce the reactive nitrogen, which is really the necessary part that we need, part that we need to do. So we're not thinking correctly when we're talking about the way we see farmers uh, um, um, protesting um, against the, the reactive nitrogen. So we talk about policies. Um, we need to, we need to get the idea of, um, of our, of our leadership understanding that, that they need to make better decisions regarding the, the lens of, of climate change, because the lens of climate change needs to be through the car, through carbon lens and not the nitrogen lens. So um, I'm hoping that somebody hears this and says, wait a minute now, that's, 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 we need to rethink this. And so, yeah, we do. We definitely need to rethink this because uh, we, when you look at the idea of climate change and the protesting that's going on and the problems that are happening, we are at the beginning of climate change. It's going to get worse. So what you see, it's going to get worse. And so and I, what I'm saying to the world, if you're listening, is that um, that we need to start looking at things a little differently. And, uh, um, and, and, and so, but I can talk more about that. Maybe the next one is on climate change. But yeah. um, it's, it's really serious stuff and, and, it, it is, and it's not right. So we have to, we have to work in a different way 
Um, and I really don't know how to convey that other than the policy, but you know, but maybe we could we could we could pull those pieces out and then try to look at them one at a time, um, because I'm really concerned about the way that you know the, the what's happening in the Netherlands and in Sri Lanka as an, as an example, um, yeah. what's happening. So we 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 need to, we need to come together and do things differently because the reason why we need to is because if we're having these problems now. When we talk about climate change in a little way, in a little way, little little climate change issues, that when we start to really start feeling the impact of climate change, we are really going to be hurting. So we really need to start to layer uh, to to create the foundation of how we set about policy now, because as we go through the years coming that are coming quickly, that we're going to find us in a in a in a much worse position. And, and so it's, it's that important and I'll leave it there. Yeah. I, I think that I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation. I, 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 one of the biggest problems I see with climate change is that when people talk about it, it's such a polarizing topic, but people don't define what they mean when they say climate change, because climate change can mean something to this person, but something totally different to this person. And they're just talking past each other. And I, I wanted to bring, I have a really good question that I want to ask you. I, I was reading this book called Black Elk Speaks, and it, it's a phenomenal story about an indigenous, a Native American, and, and the traditions that he lived through and some of the horrific things that he lived through, but some of the cultural aspects of his life. And one of the stories he tells in that book is he says, you know, when the white man came to us and said he wanted to buy our land, we laughed at him. Because we said, you can't buy the land. The land belongs to everybody. But they did buy it. And they did horrific things. And I, so I take that story. And I recently talked to an economist. And I asked him, you know, if, if we take this idea that these people came and they colonized. And they, they told the Native American, we're going to buy your land. And they said, you can't buy the land. It belongs to everybody. I'm worried now that what's happening is that People are trying to buy the air. You know, when you look at some taxes that people are trying to put in order, it's not a whole lot different than if a group of people said, we're going to buy your land. And we say, that's silly. You can't buy the land. Sometimes people are coming to us now and say, we're going to buy this air. And we're like, you can't buy the air. But it seems to me people are trying to buy the air from all of us and force us to pay for that. The same way they took the land and bound it up in chains, they're trying to take the air we breathe and bind it up in chains and make it a commodity. I think that's a dangerous situation. What do you think about that? It is. It is dangerous, and so you. Uh, so first of all, carbon is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's it's in the deepest depths of the ocean to the deepest parts of any ice core that you can drill out, and so carbon is everywhere. Carbon is is the issue of of climate change, and uh, we've seen that in the Dust Bowl. And the Dust Bowl was actually a carbon climate change problem because the farmers had plowed so much that they only had 10% of the soil organic carbon left in the soil. They they pleaded 90% of it, and that's the reason why it, that's the reason why you had the the Dust Bowl, right? I can go on all the kinds of things that happened with that and before yeah. that, and that that's that's a, that's a, that's an hour right there. Right? <laughs> yeah, awesome, right? Uh, but 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 point is is that that the air that we breathe, right? Is 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 if you look at Boyle's law, 
it takes the shape of the of, of our biosphere. Everyone breathes, everybody else is there. We we that is the way it is. But um when it comes to the greenhouse gases, when you talk about this this green this warming effect, this blanketing effect, it, 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 it is it is it is what happens because because of science. It is 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 what it, you put a blanket on at night, you get warm. It's that it's the way it, it is. You can't change it. Um, but it, so what we can do is we can mitigate some of it, right? So how do we do how do we do that? So um, you you take carbon. Is let's say as an example, um, you know, we have 10 million trees in Black Hills right now. We're trying to get right, mm-hmm. so and they're just rotting. They're rotting. There's CO2 emitting CO2 and emitting methane. And so, um, if you were to take the, the tree and you were to carbonize it, in other words, you burn it, you're going to get a certain amount of carbon out of it. Let's say it's 10 percent. You take the 10 percent of that, that carb, the actual carbon, the physical carbon, and you put it in the ground. And now you you sink that carbon and you you. You sink it in a way that the Amazons did hundreds of years ago, and that carbon will remain in the ground for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. And so, and that's what creates the sustainability of the Amazon black earth, the Amazon brown earth. This basically is like slash and burn, but it's a technology of just putting it into the ground and then and making the land fertile. Because if you take water and carbon, you have sugar. You got you got C six H. H12O6, right? You got sugar. Rich sugar is what plants need to grow. Plants are cellulosic. They're, they're cellulose. And so you need you need the carbon in order for the plant to grow. And so when the plant grows, then it uptakes CO2 from the atmosphere, but it also takes carbon from the nutrients in the ground, as well as NPK, which is nitrogen, which is which is the problem that they're having in the Netherlands and Sri Lanka. So, but the reality though is that um the, the Amazon black earth, brown earth is a sustainable agriculture. And so as you as you increase the carbon in the ground, you increase the carbon sink, you're not only supporting the climate change, but you're also supporting the yield of the plant itself because now you mm. can double and triple the yield. But in addition to that, you've sunk the carbon and, and, uh, and, and you've reduced the ability to use reactive nitrogen. So you're reducing the nitrogen as you're increasing the carbon. And so that's really the solution to the problem. Um, it's not the fact that you create like Sri Lanka did and ban nitrogen because that's not the way to do things. You, 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 you would have to do it in a way that it makes sense. So you make sense by saying, let's, let's increase our carbon. Let's, let's, let's create the sustainable carbon count. And now let's start to reduce our nitrogen. And because you'll be able to do that and, and being able to do that and, and being able also at the same time increasing your yields. So it's important that we look at it in a different way. But if the policymakers don't know what I just said, they're not going to do it because they just don't know. <laughs> right. It. Uh, right. Yeah. Dan, I had an absolute blast talking to you and I'm really looking forward to our further conversations. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been awesome. I, I could talk for a long time and a lot of different subjects. So, okay, great. We're going to get into it. We're going to, we got a new series coming up and um, like everybody go and check out Dan at, I'll put all his links below in the show notes and um, prepare for some awesome conversations coming our way. Dan, I, I really appreciate the, your outlook on life and your ability to listen. And I am thankful for your time. So let's do it again um, in a week from next Tuesday. Yes, George. Looking forward to it. Okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe people will call in and give you questions or something. Yeah. I got us live right now. And um, I, I I think that we're going to get a lot of questions coming up soon. I've I've been really fortunate, Dan. Like I've can I share a quick story with you? Sure, I, go ahead. 
I um, I I've been working really hard in, in in trying to read a lot and learn a lot, and there's this saying that I I used to hear all the time. It says slow at first and then all at once, and when you think about that particular statement, it can mean a lot of things. But for me, it means that exact thing. I've I've been working on the podcast and my channel for about three and a half years. And it was just, I was just ticking along like a graph like this. And I'd get like a couple people here subscribing and a couple here. And over the last seven days, I've got 400 subscribers. I've got 120,000 views. And it's just this, it's just this pattern of life that like you start off just doing, doing, doing. And you ask yourself like, what am I, am I even doing anything? What's going on here? And then all of a sudden you work hard, you work through your comfort zone and you keep getting up every day and pounding and pounding and working and working and, and networking and talking and learning. And then all of a sudden it's like a plant. Like you put a seed in the ground. If you go out the next day, there's not going to be any plant there, but if you water it, you take care of it and you go out and you talk to it and you, give it all the nutrients. One day a green shoot comes up. And so I've been noticing these green shoots and I'm super excited about it. And thank you for letting me share that story. Yeah. That's a great story. So yeah, George is great. So okay, um, we'll have to sign off here and catch yep, you. On we got to go. Room. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon and I'll talk to you again shortly. Yes. Thanks George. Yep. Okay. Aloha. Aloha everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision and I hope you all conquer it and I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better, your life will be better and you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.